On the road to the resurrection, in just a couple weeks, the churches all over the world will be celebrating Easter, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in the heart of the Christian hope. And uh, so in preparation for that, we're looking at a few snapshots from the last days of Jesus, part of his journey to the cross and then ultimately to uh, the resurrection. And, and uh, you know, I think as, as Jesus approached the cross, as he approached his, uh, his final suffering, one of the things we see is that the extremes in his life were accentuated. The people who liked him really, really liked him. The people who were against him really felt antagonism toward him, and, and that just seemed to grow and develop as, as he went forward. And so today we're going to look at a, an interesting story. It's notably a story that's, that uh, is carried in all four Gospels. It's the story of the woman who anointed Jesus in preparation for his burial. It's, we're going to look at it from Mark chapter 14. It's printed in your program. It says, now the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or people might riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were indignant with one another. Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given away to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want to, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And this is God's word for God's people this morning. So Easter, we're going to be celebrating in a couple weeks. You know, it's interesting. It's a global holiday. Some people think it might be the, the most celebrated holiday in the world today. People in almost every country will be celebrating Easter in their own way. Uh, they say that about 80% of Americans do something in honor of Easter, something to celebrate Easter. Sometimes it's just getting an Easter bouquet or going to Easter dinner at grandma's or taking their kids to an Easter egg hunt or getting some Easter candy. You know, there's different things that, that we do. Uh, the, you know, the markets are closed, the banks are closed for Good Friday in Canada, they're closed for Easter Monday. I'm not quite sure what that is. It's a, one of the Canadians here can explain that to me later, but um, you know what happens on Easter takes a little time to recover from, apparently, if you're a Canadian. <laughs> but uh, as we, but, but what, what that's, all of that's done is kind of neutered the real meaning of Easter. What we see in the actual Easter event is People were pushed to the extremes 
when they looked at Jesus. We look at the life of Jesus and we see in the Easter weekend the extreme of agony and suffering and betrayal in Jesus' life and then ultimately his death as he hung on the cross. And then three days later we see the ultimate victory, the ultimate triumph over death and suffering when he rose from the dead and was glorified in his resurrection. And so the event of Easter, if you look at it in those terms, it's not just a, another nice long weekend or an opportunity to, to have a kids event where you, have, uh, where, where you go on an egg hunt, but it's actually the most revolutionary event in the history of humanity. It's something that changed the world and changed the very nature of life and death itself. It's the basis for hope. Christians believe, and that's why the Christian faith uniquely is a religion of hope. It's that way because of Easter, because of what we celebrate at Easter, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so we're on the road to the resurrection, and we're seeing how some of these extremes manifested themselves as Jesus anticipated this event. And so, so as Jesus is, is just about to... Uh, Jesus has ended his public ministry, and he's, he's with some of his closest friends. And while he's there, he's, you know, he's incognito in this house. Nobody knows exactly where is, he is. The, the teachers of the law are plotting his murder. And, and that's because the establishment recognized that the status quo couldn't hold with this Jesus guy going around doing what he was doing and saying what he was saying. And so it says, look at verse 1, it says, The chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Now there's an irony there, and, and maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, but you know the chief priests were supposed to be the people who were the closest to God. The teachers of the law were supposed to be the people who understood the word of God the best, the most profoundly. And here comes the one who is the Messiah, who is God incarnate. Here comes the one who is the one all the prophets were speaking about. He actually comes to them, and rather than saying, the Messiah has come, hallelujah, we're saved, they're like, we got to kill this guy because he's going to ruin the status quo that we're comfortable with. We're not comfortable with this guy, and, and we kind of like where we're at now, the power we've accumulated, the influence we've accumulated, our nice salaries, our nice little lives. And if we let this guy live, he's going to mess all that up. And so they were more committed to their dysfunctional, pathetic status quo as vassals of the Roman Empire than they were to the possibility that God might be sending them a savior, that, the, that their scriptures might be coming true in their time and that the Messiah has come. And so first they tried to co-opt him, make him one of theirs, but then they gave up. They decided he was a threat to life as they knew it, and they didn't want their life threatened. Even as, as, as pathetic as their life was, they didn't want it threatened. Can you relate to them at all? In uh, John chapter 12, it tell, tells us a little bit of the backstory of this. They had a meeting, and Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. He said, you know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it's better that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And what he really meant is, wouldn't it be better for us to kill this guy than for life as we know it to change? They recognized that their power 
was at risk with Jesus and that Jesus was a threat to their status quo. I wonder sometimes if in the way we celebrate Easter and in the way we practice Christianity, we do the same thing as well. We can recognize Easter as a good opportunity. You know, it's that Sunday where we got to go to grandma's and we got to eat ham, even though we hate ham and we don't eat pig usually. We'll, we'll eat it on Easter or at least take some and put it on our plate because, because it's Easter and you do certain things on this holiday. We've domesticated it or we've eliminated it. It's just a for some reason, the markets are closed on Friday. We're not quite sure why, but, but we'll just uh, take the extra day off. It's Good Friday because we don't have to go to work. Uh, but Jesus will not be co-opted. If you understand what a disruptor he is to life as we know it, you recognize that, that uh, if you let him into your life, you've got to prepare to have your life turned upside down. He doesn't fit into our lives. We need to fit ourselves into his calling. And that's what the teachers of law couldn't bring themselves to do. So on the one hand, you have, have the, the religious leaders who dislike Jesus. And then on the other hand, you have one of Jesus' disciples, this guy Judas, who betrayed Jesus in the very, very last couple of verses. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Judas to them. Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. You know, today you hear the name Judas, and even if you're not too familiar with the story of Jesus, the name Judas has that sort of evil connotation because he's known as the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who turned Jesus in. But you got to understand, at this point, G Judas was one of the guys. In fact, he was so well-trusted that he was the treasurer for, of all of the common money that the disciples shared. And when Jesus said in another place, he says, you know, one of you guys is going to betray me, all the disciples were completely confused. All the disciples said, not I, Lord. And they were like, I, I, we cannot believe that someone, one of us is going to, to betray Jesus. Nobody said, oh, it's obviously Judas. Oh, there's the Judas right there, because he wasn't the Judas yet. He was just a guy named Judas, just a regular guy named <laughs> Judas. And, uh, but what happened was he was the one who was irritated because he saw this woman pouring out this valuable perfume. John tells us that Jesus' rebuke was aimed at him. In John chapter 12, it says this, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected to what the woman did. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. So, see, th this was the little exchange that led to Ju Judas saying, I'm out of here. I'm done with this and I'm going to go turn this guy in. Jesus called him out, said, leave her alone. You don't even get it. Um, and, and see, G Judas, the thing you understand is Judas was a follower of Christ, but he wasn't a believer in Christ. He was one who knew about Jesus, but he wasn't one who had put his faith in Jesus. He was pragmatic. He followed Jesus because he liked he liked the gig. He followed Jesus because, well, it says here he was making money 
while he was following Jesus because he was stealing money from the, the common pot that the, uh, that the disciples maintained. And Jesus was useful to him for a while. And following Jesus was good for him and helped him meet his objectives for a while until it was not. He was comfortable in his little spot embezzling money, being one of the guys and, and just taking what he could get until he was exposed by Jesus' rebuke. And here's the thing. I was thinking about that. You know, at that moment, Judas might have been converted. Judas might have realized, you know, there's something more valuable than this money, that this Jesus is someone more important and more significant than I thought. Jesus, Judas might have repented at that stage and said, I can't believe this. I've been stealing money and I'm part of this, this, this kingdom movement. I can't believe how dumb this was. I can't believe how off track I was. He could have been transformed. And, you know, here's the thing for all of us who would be followers of Jesus. You know, we, we can follow Jesus for a lot of different reasons. You know, maybe because it's a habit, something we've grown up with. Maybe because it's something that helps us get us get through a difficult time or something that, that uh, you know, just, just uh, enhances our our social life or something that works for us in some way or another. But I think in every follower of Christ's life, there'll be these moments that we have to confront where we ask, is this real or is this not real? Am I just following some of the rules of Jesus or do I really believe in Jesus? Am I just trying to participate in the program or am I truly committed to him? Is Jesus useful to me? Or am I devoted to him? And, you know, Judas is a cautionary tale for all of us, I think, because, you know, in life, rebukes happen when we find out that life isn't quite what we thought it was going to be, that our, our future isn't what it, we thought it was going to be, that following God isn't what we thought it was going to be. And when those rebukes happen, when those corrections happen, the question is, at that point, do we wander away? Do we walk away and look elsewhere? Or do we redouble our commitment to Jesus as our Savior, as the Messiah, as the Son of God? Judas is a cautionary tale for all of us because when those rebukes happen, are we going to walk away from him? And over the years, you know, I've seen a lot of people use those difficulties, use those rebukes as excuses to walk away. Or when those things happen, is that going to drive us back to him to experience the reality of his grace and mercy towards us? So, so we have Judas who betrays him. We have the chief priests who were defending the status quo. But then in the middle of it, we have this woman, this unnamed woman, who's a model of devotion. She takes this jar of very expensive perfume. In fact, it's so expensive, he's... The, the writer says it was worth a year's wages. And so I, I think that's, that's good because that's kind of a transferable number. I'm, I mean, just think about your own life. What do you live off in a year? What do you make in a year? Imagine taking a year's worth of work and breaking that open and pouring that out in a matter of minutes. It was probably her most valuable personal asset perhaps something that had been handed down to her for, for generations, and she just poured it out. There was this recognition that 
something special was going on, that they were in the presence of something, of someone who was above, who was not just an average person. They were in the presence of God himself and something profound was about to happen to this Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, the poor you will always have with me, but you will not always have me. See, what was going on is this woman had actually been listening to Jesus. This woman had actually been accepting what Jesus had said. This woman had actually been processing what Jesus had said. And Jesus had said that he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to die, and then he was going to rise again from the dead. And this woman grasped that. His disciples were still in La La Land. They thought they were going into Jerusalem to run a political campaign or something. But, but this woman understood that this might be the last time she saw him alive. She, he under, she understood, she listened to him when he said just a, a few days earlier, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. She, she grasped all that and that moved her to pour out this perfume on him. And uh, Jesus says, says that she's the one who's actually a model for us. And verse 9 says, puts it this way. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory for, of her. And that's actually a remarkable thing because... If you're familiar, there's four, four versions of the life of Christ in the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, you know, what's interesting is, is they tell the, the same story, but from four different perspectives, and, and they, they include different incidents in, in his life. They, they kind of pick and choose different ones. But what's interesting is this story is in all four versions of the gospel, because all of the gospel writers said this event was important. This event gives us a perspective on who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. See, the call of Jesus is a call to commit, uh, a call to, to pour ourselves out for him. You know, some people look at him and they're uncomfortable with the way he might disrupt their lives if, if he's allowed to stay there. Other people look at him and say, you know, this just isn't working for me anymore. But Jesus says, if you want me in your life, you've got to recognize that I need your commitment. I don't, don't need you to be perfect, but I need you to commit what you, what you can. I like what he says in verse 8. She has done what she could. You know, Jesus isn't saying, you know, there's a, there's a price you got to pay, and until you can afford it, don't bother coming. He says all of us need to do what we can. And he doesn't say, you know, if, if, you can't, if you can't meet this standard, you're not, you're not going to get admitted. He says, all of us have something to give, and all of us need to give what we have to give. And, and she happened to have this valuable bottle of uh, ointment, and she, and she poured it out. And so the question for all of us as we look at the person of Jesus is, what do you happen to have? What's the talent you happen to have? What's the ability you happen to have? What's the asset you happen to have? What's the strength you happen to have? What's the resource you happen to have that, that you could pour out for Jesus? Because he, he doesn't ask you to give what you don't have. And there's a lot of things. I think we're all much more aware of what we don't have. But he asks us, like this woman, she has done what she could. And, and was preparing Jesus' 
body for burial. The good news is that when we come to Jesus, when we serve Jesus, when we sacrifice for Jesus, he doesn't say to any of us, I'm sorry you didn't give enough. I'm sorry your sacrifice is not sufficient. If we can do, if if we're willing to give him what we have, that's what the benchmark is. So, So she's the model for us of real faith because she took the most precious thing, most valuable thing she had, and she poured it out on Jesus. And, and here's, here's the standard I think that Jesus is setting for us, is, is when Jesus comes into your life, the, the, re- the way you'll recognize it is you'll make decisions and lifestyle choices and commitments and sacrifices that the people who know you but don't know Jesus will look at you and say, you're crazy. What are you doing? And uh, when Jesus comes into your life, what you allow him to do is disrupt your status quo and say, you know, there's something more important than just maintaining my respectable status quo. And, and when Jesus comes into your life, you, you recognize, well, maybe following him isn't going to benefit me directly. And, and people who don't get him, who don't see his glory, don't see his power, don't see his grace, who don't know his love are going to be like, why are you even doing that? Why are you making those choices? Those choices make no sense. But what Jesus wants when he comes into your life is he wants you to pour out or offer up your most precious. And maybe that's a precious possession. Maybe that's a precious ambition or career goal that you have in mind. Maybe it's a precious lifestyle <laughs> choice that you would like to pursue or a relationship that, that's important to you but you recognize isn't compatible with following Christ. And when you make that decision, people who don't know Jesus, who don't see Jesus, are going to look at you and they won't understand it. And they'll look at you and say, why this waste? Like the disciples said to the woman, why are you wasting this on on Jesus? This is a little bit extravagant for this. But if Jesus is the Son of God, if he's the one who conquered death for you and me, then If he's worth following, he's worth surrendering your most precious thing to him. Story is told, famous example of this, an inspiring example, is a guy named William Borden, who was one of the sons of one of the richest families in America in the early 1900s. Grew up in Chicago, and in 1904, he went to Yale University and, and was according to accounts of people who knew him then, he was one of the smartest kids and one of the most charismatic and talented kids there. But the whole time he was there, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to the Far East and I'm going to be a missionary to Muslims. And everybody thought he was crazy. One of his peers said he was throwing himself away to be a missionary. But he never wavered from that course. And so he, he, he finished at Yale. He went to graduate studies at Princeton. And then he headed off on a boat because this was about 2000 or 1910 or so, headed off on a boat and made his way to Egypt. And in Egypt, he enrolled himself in a language school. He was going to learn Arabic so that uh, he he would be equipped to be a missionary among the the, uh, Muslims in, in the Far East. But while he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died at age 25. Life was over. His ambition was over. All of his talent was gone. They found his personal Bible, and they were going through his personal effects, and on the, on the back page he had written this, No reserves, 
no retreats, and no regrets. He is buried in Cairo, and the inscription on his gravestone read, Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. And that was inspiring to me. It's like, what can they say about your life that apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for the choices you're making? Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for the lifestyle decisions you've made. Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for the way you manage your affairs. And that's the benchmark for commitment. Those who lack faith, friends and family and neighbors, will look at you and say, you know, this person's throwing stuff away. We don't understand why they live that way, when really the reason you live that way is because you see what really matters, what's really valuable is the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. In Philippians 3, Paul the Apostle puts it this way, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider these things garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. See, Paul is saying there's a new economic analysis, a new cost-benefit analysis, and you see the value of Christ in your life. You see the value of His victory over death for you. It changes the way you evaluate everything else. And, uh, and all of a sudden, breaking up the status quo of your life might be worth it because of what you'll gain. All of a sudden, the small things you gain just, just from being conveniently connected to Christ become trivial compared to the grace that he offers to all of us. When you meet him, you understand, like Paul, like like William Borden, like the woman, that the rational response is to be willing to pour out everything. It makes sense when you see Jesus. If you understand the victory of Easter, that makes sense for any of us to do. See, this woman saw what the disciples were blind to, that he was going to Jerusalem, that he was going to be rejected by the people, he was going to be arrested, he was going to be nailed to a cross, he was going to be forsaken by God on that cross, but he was going to be forsaken by his father so that we could be accepted. He was the one who was immortal, and yet he was going to be killed so that we could live forever. He was the one who was the source of life, and he was going to die so that we might live. He was the sinless one, and yet he was going to be punished so that we might be forgiven. See, the real extravagance in the gospel is not what Paul or this woman or William Borden might have sacrificed for Jesus. You know what the real extravagance of the gospel is? If you start to understand the gospel, it's that Jesus poured out his life for you and for me. And that, that's the story of Christianity, right? That, that's, that, that's the heart of the Christian message. And so if we reject Jesus, we're rejecting his generosity towards us. If we try to use him for, for temporary gain, we're missing the point of what he offers to us. The real extravagance is the fact that he gave his life for you and for me. And, and that's the real significance that he 
invites us into. When we see his sacrifice, when we see the sacrifice of Jesus, we see his blood being poured out for us, when we see his body being broken for us, that's where we should look and we should say, why this waste? Why is the perfect, sinless Son of God willing to pour himself out for us? Why is the innocent Son of God being forsaken for me? Why is the beloved Son of God having his Father turn his face away from him? And the answer is, he's doing that for me. He's pouring himself out for me. The real precious outpouring is the outpouring of his blood so that you might be cleansed. The breaking of his body so that you might be made whole. As the song we just sang says, Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that often Jesus messes up the status quo we're trying to maintain in our life. I pray that you would help us to surrender that to him. We know that sometimes we're trying to get the wrong things from following Christ. I pray that you would help us to see his love is what we want and his love and grace is what we need. Help us to embrace that, we pray. Thank you for the example of this woman, and I thank you most of all for the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.